Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So, reconciliation. What does that word mean? In our day in life, you know, we don't hear this word like on a regular basis, but what does the word reconciliation mean? Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines it as the act of reconciling, the state of being reconciled. Don't you hate definitions like that? Like, like, like what does reconciliation mean? It's the state of being reconciled. I don't know what that means. Uh, To continue with Merriam-Webster's definition, it says that reconciling's primary definition is to restore to friendship or harmony, to settle or resolve, to restore to friendship or harmony, to settle or resolve. As I think about this, one word comes to my mind, peace. We have all experienced a lack of peace in our relationships at times, haven't we? And we've been around those who are in conflict. Whether we are in conflict or involved with those who are in it, we know that feeling of a lack of harmony and the peace and and the lack of peace that conflict brings. Conflict has this like powerful dark gravity, which is like a black hole that causes pretty much everything around it to revolve around that conflict, doesn't it? And it seems like it tries to suck everything into it. On the other hand, reconciliation is the restoring of peace. And it brings with it, at least in my experience, this sense of weightlessness, relief and kind of brightness, whereas a lack of peace causes a deep root of bitterness and anguish. Reconciliation causes joy and solace. We know that there's conflict in the world, don't we? I mean, we don't have to sell each other on that very much. But the Bible is one progressive narrative how God is reconciling this broken world back to himself. When God made all things, we can't forget this. When God made all things, he made it perfect. The word is shalom. It means he made it whole, functioning properly. Everything was relating to itself the way that it should. Everything was living into its purpose and why it was created. It was in perfect harmony, shalom, in peace. However, that was broken, and we all know the story, but we've got to continue. I love, was it Martin Luther Darren that said, preach the gospel to yourself every day? Is that who said that? Somebody did. Somebody smart said that you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Maybe I said it, I don't know, but that wouldn't be that smart of a person if that. So Genesis 3, we we can't forget how profound of a chapter Genesis 3 is. Because it tells her our first parents, Adam and Eve, how they wanted life on their own terms, not wanting to submit to their maker. Instead, they wanted to be like, uh, they, they wanted to kind of sit in the maker's place. 
masters of their own lives, definers of their own truth. And this was displayed when they ate from the one tree in the garden that God had commanded them not to eat from. The desire of their heart, their deceptive thoughts, and their rebellious action are what Scripture calls sin. And as a result of that, sin broke everything. Where there was peace, there was now conflict between God and man. Conflict between man and man. Conflict between man and creation. Has anybody shoveled their driveway lately? Has anybody had the plowman come and wreck the bottom of your driveway? After, sorry, sorry. I, peace in my heart, brother. Peace in my heart. <laughs> sorry. Peace in my heart. <laughs> we love you. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But we see the devastating effects of sin's brokenness all around us, don't we? Because simply put, sin brings conflict. But the great news, though, is the great news is that Genesis does not stop there but continues with God's plan of reconciliation. And we see this in some monumental points through history and the Genesis narrative for, uh, where, where, where we see God do this. So, for example, in Genesis chapter 12, we all know this. God called a man named Abraham, giving him a wonderful promise that a great nation would descend from him. That nation would be given their very own land, and it would be through this nation that God would bring global reconciliation and the rest of Scripture continues to unfold this promise that God himself would once and for all bring peace to the great conflict that exists between God and man. He would bring peace between man and man, and he would bring peace and restore the harmony between man and creation. Meaning, uh, and, and so God then gave Abraham a son named Isaac to whom all this great promise was passed. And then Isaac had two sons, a guy named Jacob and a guy named Esau, fraternal twins, with Esau being the oldest. But God chose to pass his promise, not to the oldest son, but to the youngest son, a son named Jacob. Jacob is who we've really been studying through Genesis over the last several weeks. But Jacob would hardly be the one that any of us would pass this promise to. He was the embodiment of his name. He was a deceiver. He was a supplanter. He was a schemer. Because of Jacob's actions and Esau's like, like impulsiveness, a great conflict arose between these two brothers. It was so bad that Jacob had to flee to a foreign land. And while in exile, God came to Jacob and took all the promises he gave to Abraham that Abraham had passed to his son Isaac. God passes all of these promises on to Jacob. And 20 years, though, Jacob lives in exile. But then he goes on God's command to return back home. Jacob now has wives and children and servants and the wealth that God had blessed him with while in exile. And he started to head back to the land of his father, the land of Canaan, which is the very land that God had promised all the way back to his gr uh, grandfather. That's the land I'm going to give to you <clears throat> and your descendants. And in Genesis chapter 32 and chapter 33, what this does is it highlights one 24-hour period in Jacob's life. Isn't it interesting? In a couple of chapters, we span 20 years, and now we go to 22 chapters, and we span 24 hours. 32 begins on the border of the promised land. 
Jacob is just about ready to cross into it. And immediately as he's getting ready to step back into the promised land, he has thoughts of his brother that begin to plague his mind. And he knows that he is now going to have to come face to face with his bigger, stronger, and hateful brother who wants him dead. And we read last week how Jacob's desires to make peace with Esau, uh, that the first thing he did was to send messengers to gain his favor. However, when they returned, they're like, yeah, uh, sorry, um, your brother's on the way with 400 men to kill you. And in chapter 32, verse 7, it says that this made Jacob greatly afraid and distressed. And because of this, he started scheming ways to protect himself, to appease his brother. And you almost kind of get this idea that, that Jacob might be almost frantic as he's getting ready to face his greatest fear and threat. However, in the midst of it all, we remember Jacob prayed and he prayed a rich and meaningful prayer that remembered who God was, remembered all of his promises and, 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 and just asked to be delivered. And that night that he prayed, God showed up in a most mysterious way in the form of a man who wrestled with Jacob throughout the night. God's intention was to bring Jacob to the end of himself, if you remember. This is what we talked about last week, to learn from his weakness that he will actually find strength, that God has delivered, uh, or that God is the deliverer of his life and the one who, she, who, who he should ultimately fear. Not Esau, he should ultimately fear his God. And God gave Jacob two remarkable blessings as a way to highlight these lessons for his people, a limp and a new name. God, with just a touch, dislocates Jacob's hip, showing his own power and Jacob's weakness. And Jacob's strength will be relying on the powerful God over and against his own abilities. Second, he gives him a new name, giving him a new identity. He is no longer a deceiver and a schemer, but he is one who belongs to God and will find his peace, having peace with the God who truly loves him and rules over him. And from this encounter, Jacob left in awe that he saw God and lived. And he left with a limp. He left with a new name. And now he will stand face to face with his brother. So let's read chapter 33. This is the word of the Lord. It says, and Jacob lift his eyes, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, who, who are these who are with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, 
to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I found favor in your sight, then accept my, my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and Esau took it. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day to his, uh, on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth. He built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padanaram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This is a powerful moment that's been 20 years in the making. Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with his 400 men. While so much had changed in Jacob from the night of wrestling with God, there is no indication anything has changed with Esau. As far as he knew, Esau was coming to make good on his promise to kill him. However, the Jacob that was filled with fear and distress the previous day had been changed by his encounter with God, and it prepared him for the reunion he was to have with Esau. And we see this change by his own actions. First, he orders his family, the servants and their children first, then Leah and her children, then finally Rachel and Joseph, showing Jacob's favoritism of both Rachel and her son. More on that in the coming weeks, by the way. Put a pin in that. However, unlike yesterday, th th this is a subtle but such an important change. Unlike the previous day, when Jacob put the entire camp and a giant parade of gifts and even his own family between him and Esau, verse 3 says that after he orders his family, that Jacob himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This language highlights a profound shift in Jacob, moving from the rear to the front, willing to put himself in harm's way in front of his family. Jacob had wrestled with God, giving him a massive perspective change. Once he has done battle with the Lord, we learn that there is no man who can compare or deserves our fear. And so Jacob steps forward, no longer fearing Esau as he once did. However, he does not step forward arrogantly, like, all right, you ready to go? He doesn't do that. 
He bows seven times as he's approaching his brother. He comes humbly before his brother. Jacob is the one who, who uh, uh, Jacob is the one who was told that his older brother will actually serve him, that the nations will bow down to Jacob, and yet here now Jacob is the one bowing. This act of bowing was putting Esau before himself. He no longer had a scheme to fulfill God's promises. He no longer had to try to deceive his brother or to take advantage of him. He bows, showing Esau he is not coming as an adversary. He is not coming to, 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 to get one over on him again, but he is simply seeking a peaceful resolution to the wrongs of the past. Jacob is putting himself at the mercy of Esau, no longer fearing him, no longer hiding, no longer uh, you know, needing to scheme, but he humbly stands before him, limping and bowing. He was able to humbly put himself in this position without fear because he had held on to and received mercy from God Almighty. No man can compare to that. Who was Esau truly compared to God? You can almost sense the drama of the moment, can't you? It has been building for 20 years. What will Esau do now that Jacob is right in front of him, limping and humble? No protection. Verse 4 tells us, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the two brothers wept. The darkness of brotherly conflict gave way to the light of reconciliation. Verse 4 is a very strong verse highlighting the joy of the moment. The two brothers engaged in 20 years of intense rivalry are now embracing one another and they're weeping. John Wesley commenting on this verse, wrote this. He said, Jacob wept for joy to be thus kindly received. Esau perhaps wept for grief and shame to think of the ill design he had conceived against his brother. Two brothers weeping for two very different reasons. One, because I just can't believe this guy I feared my whole life is embracing me. The second one, I can't believe I've wanted to kill my own brother. And here they are. Similar language will be employed from verse 4 by Jesus when he tells the parable of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke. How, how a father joyfully runs when he sees his wayward son returning home. There can be little doubt that Jesus had this encounter playing in the back of his mind. A son rejecting his father, wasting his inheritance, dishonoring his family, was left to eat slop with the pigs instead of living as a son under the loving care and protection of his father. The son had sinned greatly and recklessly against his father, but he longed to return home and ask forgiveness. And Jesus described how the son was greeted upon his return with these words. In Luke chapter 15, verse 20, it says this, And the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
Oh, the power of reconciliation. The power of the heart of the reconciler. Like the moment in Genesis 33, Luke 15 shows the beautiful picture of true reconciliation and all the momentous joy that can be found there. See, reconciliation is a primary theme throughout Scripture. It is the very heart of the gospel message. It is the very heart of God for his people. It is one of the main things we sing about and celebrate. The moment between Jacob and Esau show us the glorious joy that is found when those at odds embrace in peace. Then Esau looked up and saw Jacob's children, sees the servants and the wives, and asked, Who are all these people? Almost like, you, brother, got married and found a wife and she had babies with you? <laughs> you found six wives? <laughs> like, and here we see the change in Jacob. He no longer is taking credit for them. He knows they're a gift from God and introduces them to his reconciled brother. Next, Esau asks about this. He, like, what was it with this big parade that was coming towards me? Why did I get all this stuff? And again, Jacob living into his new nature, the scheming and deceiving and the planning put aside, plainly says, I was trying to buy you off, man. <laughs> I didn't want you to hate me anymore. So I, I said everything I thought you'd like. But as was customary, Esau declines the gift, saying, I have enough. But Jacob insists that he takes it. And verse 10 says something very peculiar. No, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. It's a very peculiar phrase, isn't it? What is going on here? For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. There's a lot of talk about faces in chapter 32 and 33. In chapter 32, Jacob saw God and lived. He now sees Esau and has lived. Jacob has been reconciled to both, first to God and now to his brother. And this moment, I believe, is also tied to his prayer in chapter 32. Jacob prayed to be delivered from Esau because he feared, he feared him. And God delivered him. Seeing the reconciling face of Esau was no doubt tangible evidence that God had heard Jacob's cry and answered his prayer. It's a powerful moment. In both instances, yes, seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. On the one hand, they've been restored to friendship and harmony. And on the other, God is the one that worked to make it happen. Esau, seeing you is tangible evidence that my God hears me. That I belong to my God and my God is mine. Jacob is celebrating the goodness of God evidenced in the joyful reconciliation with his brother. And here we see a profound truth. God is glorified in reconciliation. Jacob continues to press Esau to take the gift he sent because he knows all he has has come from God. 
I don't think it's a stretch that what he had stolen from Esau 20 years earlier was now on his mind, and Jacob wanted to fix the wrong that he had done as best as he could. So Esau accepts the gifts, showing the two brothers have truly been restored to harmony. Jacob has had an amazing 24 hours. What began, what began as a day of great fear and distress has concluded with peace and harmony because of the restored peace with God and his brother. Please don't miss the significance of that order. Jacob first had to be reconciled to the God who came to him and then was able to be fully reconciled to his brother. And so for us, Reconciliation with God leads to reconciliation with our brother. In verse 12, in verses 12 through 16, we see that Esau wanted to accompany Jacob with, his, uh, with him back to his home. Come home with me, brother. Accompany me back home, which lies outside the promised land. Seir is not in the promised land. So Jacob is like, here with his brother, come home with me. And Jacob's like, no, I, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go home. Kind gesture. Thank you. Thank you for wanting to leave me some men to protect me. But at the end of verse 16, we see that Jacob would not go with Esau outside the promised land. And he did not want Esau to leave him soldiers to protect him. And so both brothers depart, but this time in peace. Jacob travels east of the Jordan River. He builds shelters for himself, his servants, and his livestock, and he names it Succoth, which means booths. We don't know how long he stays, but we cannot miss verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. God had commanded Jacob to return home to the promised land of Canaan, and God had brought Jacob and his whole household exactly back to where God told him to go. It's a powerful moment. When Jacob left Canaan, he was fleeing for his life at great odds with his brother. Now, by God's gracious work, his life is safe and is at peace with his brother, and he's now living in the promised land. Jacob even purchases a small plot of land. He erects an altar, and he worships God who came to him, established peace with him, and made him new, and worked on his behalf, bringing him safely home and reconciling him to his brother, declaring as he makes this altar, El Elohi Israel, or God, the God of Israel. Jacob no longer views God as only the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac, as he did in the prayer in chapter 32. Now he is his God. And is beginning to live into his new identity, not as Jacob, but as Israel. He is not a finished product by any means, but he is a new man by God's grace. There is so much to glean from these two chapters important concepts which continue to run through the rest of scriptures. But the one thing that I ask you to see, do you see the divine importance of reconciliation? 
Reconciliation is one of the main themes throughout the scriptures. It is why God established his promise with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God is bringing an end to the conflict that sin has caused between himself and us and between ourselves. This is why God has slowed, or this is why God has slowed down the progression of Genesis, highlighting one 24-hour period to teach us the importance of being reconciled first to God and then to our brother. And I urge you to see not only the importance of reconciliation, but also to see the importance of the biblical order. We must first be reconciled to God. Like Jacob, we must see God in light of who he is. We must see him who he is to us without Jesus. Because when we, when we understand, as Darren mentioned at the beginning of the, of the service, when we see ourselves before God without Christ, here's who God is to us. He is our holy judge. Like Jacob, who wronged his brother, we have all sinned against God. Meaning that this, I'll tell you what, one of the most profound concepts I ever grabbed a hold of in my own heart and life that both equally disgusted me and equally terrified me was to recognize that without Jesus in my natural state, I am God's enemy. I am not his child. I am made in his image. But that image is marred, and I stand before God as his enemy who has constantly given him the middle finger with every aspect of my life. And at best, my view of God was, I want you to serve me. I want you to give me what I want. If you don't do the things that I think you should do, when I think you should do them, how I think you should do them, then screw you. Screw you. That was my posture before God. And God is not moved by that, ladies and gentlemen. God looks and says, you want to live at enmity with me, then you prepare to answer me like a man. And God will crush his enemies. History is a tale of God crushing his enemies. I find it fascinating that the greatest empires the world has ever seen, gone. Babylon, the, one of the greatest cities to ever stand, it's in ruins. The Nazi empire, shaking their fist at God, seeks to take over the world, eradicate six million Jews and homosexuals and gypsies, gone. Frederick Nietzsche, God is dead. Well, Nietzsche's dead. Like Jacob, who wronged his brother, we have sinned against God, meaning we're his enemy, and he's our judge, and it is to him we are accountable. We stand before him, shamed, awaiting his wrath, and like Jacob stood before Esau, so we stand before God. You cannot understand the gospel until you understand this point. I hate, I wish, if I could write my own gospel, I would write a different message that says, you are wonderful and you are fabulous and every day is Friday and I would just tell you Joel Osteen sermons. I would preach Stephen Furtick sermons to you. Our church would be a lot bigger. 
but it's not the gospel. And our whole town is deluded with people that think they know God and that we are just born with the rightful place that I'm God's child and God loves me and you owe me heaven. And God says, you don't know me. And you certainly don't know yourself. However, God fulfilled his promise of redemption in his son Jesus, who came as a man and put himself between his people and God's wrath. Similarly, don't miss this, similarly to Jacob, who put himself between Esau and his family. Jesus is the better Jacob who never sinned and yet stood in the place of sinners, suffering and satisfying all the judgment and wrath that our sin deserved by dying on the cross. He takes his people, puts them behind himself, and says, I'll bear all the wrath of God that you owed. I'll take it. The freight train is coming. I'll be Hancock that stands on that track, and I'll take the brunt of the train so that you don't have to. Oh, the gospel is glorious. He was dead and buried for three days and he rose again in victory, showing that all who believe in Jesus can be freely forgiven, freely forgiven, have peace with God and given a new identity from sinner and enemy to saint, to friend, to child, to son, to daughter. Jesus Christ is our peace with God. He himself is our peace. When we place our trust in Jesus, I love what theologian John Calvin says about this. He so beautifully put it, when we place our faith in Jesus, God becomes, instead of a judge, an indulgent father. There is no peace with God apart from Jesus Christ. Have you been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ? That is the primary question everyone in this room needs to do business with. We must first be reconciled to God, and then we must be reconciled to our brother. Jacob was humbled before his God and received a divine grace. And the same is true for all those who belong to Jesus. This is why the gospel is good news. It's saying you can find life even though you're dead. You can find forgiveness even though you're guilty. You can find a new identity. Because I know we're all trying to figure out how to escape the one that we were given. And we are commanded then to freely forgive and to seek reconciliation because in Christ, God sought reconciliation with us. And so as he initiated that with us, we are to initiate that with our brother. This is an important matter to Christ who said in his Sermon on the Mount that if we approach God in worship and we have a grievance with someone, we're actually to leave the gift that we were meant to offer to God and we are to go and be reconciled to our brother and then come back to worship. Is there someone in your life you need to be reconciled with? I don't mean to show them how you were right and to win them to your side. I mean real reconciliation. 
Either you've wronged them or they've wronged you. Your conflict is riddled with a dark gravity. I urge you, in light of the gospel, make the first move to reconcile. Even if they've done nothing to deserve it. If they reject you, that's on them. But praise God, he made the first move to be reconciled to his people, that while we were still sinners, his enemies, Christ died. May you follow his example. May you lay down your life, your pride, as an act of worship and seek reconciliation, that you experience the joy and weightlessness of peace. Peace with God. Peace with your brother. And in it all, reconciliation with God and with our brother. May God be glorified in both. In both. Oh, may we find the beauty and depth of reconciliation. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. And God, I am so deeply thankful for the gospel. God, I'm thankful that you love us enough that while we were your enemies, you sent Christ to die. That you would take us who were, do, who were hostile to you and to bring us back in peace and forgiveness and mercy and new life. What a powerful gift redemption is. And God, I pray that not a single person who hears this message would, would treat it casually or just walk away, but we would humbly say, Jesus, save me. And that from that power of, of your work in Christ to make peace with us, that God, we would at the same time seek to be peacemakers here in our life. In our marriages, may we pursue peacemaking. With our children, may we pursue peacemaking. As we live our lives in this community, may we pursue peacemaking. For your scriptures say, blessed are the peacemakers. And so, Father, while there are heavy things to be considered today, these heavy things are also deeply joyful and meaningful. And help us rejoice in you the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Christ has made peace with us through the blood of the cross. And help our church body be marked by a congregation of peace with one another because of that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.